the sky is not classified, let's just figure it out ourselves. You know, why, why do we need to wait and listen? And I don't have an issue with government. They can do whatever they want. But as a scientist, you know, for millions of dollars, I can build equipment that will give me the answer. Welcome, everybody, to part two of a special conversation between my friends, Professor Avi Loeb of Harvard University and Harvard graduate, PhD physicist, Dr. Eric Weinstein, a member of Avi's Galileo Project, discussing this fascinating new creation by the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, legitimizing, legitimating the uh, study perhaps for the first time in the NASA kind of pantheon of, of topics that they do so uniquely well. And I point out, NASA's got pretty much the strongest brand on Earth in terms of you know what, what it represents and what people think about the value of NASA and the cost of NASA. If you ask someone, how much budget of your tax dollars does NASA get? They think it's like $1,000. NASA's budget's like $20 billion. It's very small compared to the huge impact that it makes for something less than, say, you know, about the price of Twitter now, not when Elon made the bid for it. But it's now worth, I don't know, $20 billion, call it that. NASA does so much. And now it's inculcated this, this project to do in a similar way what Avi had started off uh, to call and collect and, and construct new tools, methods, observations, hardware to observe the sky, not looking for the astronomical objects that he does during the day, but for phenomena, unexplained phenomena, unidentified phenomena. So I hope you'll enjoy this episode. As I said, in part one, I don't ask for much. I'll only ask you for two things. If you like these conversations, please leave a rating on whatever app you're listening to this on. Just leave a star, one to five, prefer five, obviously. But if you have some feedback, leave a one and let me know what, what you want me to do. Who you'd like to see more of, what you'd like to see less of. Do you like these live conversations? Don't forget to subscribe to my YouTube channel. We can see Avi and Eric in conversation. Um, that's, a doc, uh, that's a Dr. Brian Keating on YouTube. And subscribe to my mailing list brianketing.com slash list, and you'll be entered to win something that's extraterrestrial, not of this Earth, and that is a fragment or some space dust, some space schmutz from a solar system uh, not far from here, uh, a fragment of a meteorite or some dust particulates, and I will send it to you if you live in the USA. I can't ship out of the USA very easily, but I welcome your subscription to the mailing list no matter what. Uh, we have exciting interviews coming up. On the podcast, Bill Phillips, winner of the 1997 Nobel Prize. We have um, a first non-physicist Nobel Prize winner coming on, an economist coming on not too long from now, and many other exciting developments. So please do subscribe to the mailing list to keep apprised and appraised of all that. I send out just two emails a month uh, that are kind of previews of what's to come. I love hearing from you. You can catch my interview with Neil deGrasse Tyson on their Star Talk podcast. Don't miss my Lex Friedman interview at Lex, Lex's podcast. And um, tell them that you want to have me back. And I'm hopefully going to be invited on both of those shows, as well as my friend Arvin Ash, who runs an amazing YouTube channel. Look for that episode coming soon. But for now, go deep, deep into the unexplained phenomena that is perhaps lurking within our very backyard. Is that dramatic enough? Enjoy this episode of the Into the Impossible podcast. Avi Loeb, Eric Weinstein, united together in a discussion of all things unexplained. Enjoy, everybody. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Open the pod bay doors, please, Hal. I'm talking with my friends, Dr. Eric Weinstein, <clears throat> proprietor of the Portal Podcast and um, general raconteur, impresario, uh, advisor, friend, and uh, mentor to, to many. Uh, graduate of Harvard, which we'll get into in just a bit, and uh, the Frank Baird Professor uh, at Harvard, former longest serving chair, if I'm not wrong, of Harvard's uh, uh, renowned astronomy department, author of number one best-selling book, Extraterrestrial, Professor Avi Loeb of Harvard, and I am your humble podcast host, Brian Keating, proprietor of the Into the Impossible podcast, where I make videos and short-form and long-form interviews like this, but also short-form explainers. I've yet to do one about you know, how we would actually collect data from this. But Avi, I wanted to ask you, first of all, do you want to respond to the to the outrageous accusation that I made? I mean, could you be proven wrong? Could, um, is there anything course, conceivable that I could, how, how, I mean, and, and how would I, I do it? How would I do it? More importantly. It's of course very simple. Could. I'm really surprised that you're asking this because remember this uh, image from Osiris Rex, this mission that landed on the asteroid Bennu. 
Okay, yeah. and it will bring a sample of the material that this asteroid was made of to Earth next year. Yeah. So it was clear from the image when it landed that it's a rock. It was obvious. Okay, and I would never argue that this is not a rock because it looks like a rock. Now, what did my colleagues suggest for Oumuamua? They suggested it's a rock of a type that we've never seen before because a rock of the type that we had seen before cannot explain all the anomalies, okay? So they suggested maybe it's a hydrogen iceberg, a chunk of frozen hydrogen. This is Oumuamua. You're, you're speaking Oumuamua, about not, yeah. not Osiris. No, Oumuamua. And um, they suggested maybe Oumuamua is a, a frozen hydrogen and then we don't see the cometary tail because hydrogen is transparent. And, and uh, I did a calculation that was published where we showed that uh, actually it would get evaporated very quickly through interstellar space. So it cannot be a hydrogen. But let's imagine it is. Okay. Then the suggestion was, okay, well, it's not a hydrogen iceberg. Maybe it's a nitrogen iceberg that was chipped off a planet like Pluto. And the problem is there is not enough solid nitrogen. But let's leave that aside. There is not enough solid nitrogen to explain a population of this magnitude. But let's just say, okay, maybe it's a nitrogen iceberg. Again, something we've never seen before. And the third possibility was a dust bunny, a, a, a cloud of dust particles, a hundred times less dense than air, so that it gets pushed by reflecting sunlight without any cometary tail. And I say, these are the, the, the leading possibilities that the mainstream of astronomers suggested. And you ask me to say, you know, what would convince me that I, it's very simple. You send something like OSIRIS-REx. If it flies through the object, then it's right. a dust bunny because yeah. a cloud of dust particles, a hundred times less dense than air, is so fluffy, you can pass through it. Now, if it's a hydrogen uh, iceberg or nitrogen iceberg, when you land on it, it's obvious. I can, I, I'm willing uh, to bet that it's neither of these three, okay? Now you ask me, what could it be? I say, I don't know, but maybe it is artificial in origin. That's all I'm saying. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's a leaflet, leaflet from another civilization that was thin and straight, and there is a message on it. I don't know what it is. We can only imagine. But my but, point but is, then, we, then you know, it's again to be. Like, yeah. My point is, we can find out easily by going there. Okay, and that's, that's my point. So, right. right. And when my you, objective, mm -hmm. my objective is to find out the answer, and I don't care if I'm wrong or not. What I care about is people saying it's a rock of a type that we've never seen before. Case closed. Forget about it. Discussion <laughs> closed. And ridiculing the other option when it's not ruled out. Brian, let me ask you a question. Why drag this discussion to have us constantly talk about this group of people that we shouldn't really be letting guide the discussion? In other words, you're sort of saying, ah, just to give you the chance to respond. My feeling is, when did these people get the credibility to but tell it's not these people. Hold on, hold on, hold on. It's not these yeah. people. It's me. So when Avi was on the podcast to discuss Oumuamua in, in uh, January 2021, I said to him, Avi, you know, you know some billionaires. And I, I didn't know about Galileo Project at that point. Now I know he knows more billionaires. Uh, and so I'm going to be extra nice in my uh, in my gift basket to you this, this <laughs> coming fall. But I said, oh, Avi, put your money where your mouth is. Have your friend who sponsored the Breakthrough Prize, have him, uh, Yuri uh, Milner, have him, instead of directing cell phone cameras to Proxima Centauri B, send those sensors to Oumuamua or something equivalent to it. And you said to you me, I may, like hold on, hold on, Eric, hold on, hold on. Avi said to me, no, it's okay, because Vera Rubin Observatory, which I agree, will have the capability, we should see hundreds of these things. But I said, Avi, there are things in science, as we know, that are three sigma, four sigma, so they should only occur by fluke, one out of every five million times, and we know they happen much more often than that. What if Oumuamua is kind of the opposite of that? What if it's a one, the one chunk of interstellar message in a bottle? We can oh, miss it if you don't apply funding and rockets and so forth to it. So I'm going to give you a chance to respond. But, but the amazing thing is that we do have funding. So these multi-billionaires came to the porch of my home, funded the Galileo project. Just a week ago, I said we need funding for the expedition to Papua New Guinea. I just said that we need the funding. Mm. Within a week, I got half a million dollars. Now, I tell you, as department chair of the astronomy department at Harvard, you know, we've been trying for a decade to raise similar funds to the giant Magellan telescope. Right. Okay. And here, I didn't do any fundraising. People came to me and said, that's inspiring. We like the vision. We enjoyed your book. So I'm telling you, the public cares about it. The government cares about it. Wealthy individuals care about it. I did not entice them. They came to me and said, here is the money. 
no strings attached. Mm. How can you explain that? Many of my colleagues work extremely hard to right. raise those funds or get committees in at NSF or NASA, give them even a small fraction of those funds. They just come to me. Over the past decade, I was fully funded by the private sector. And that allows me to be free in my thinking. And I think that is the way of the future because but what happens in federal funding agencies very often is that they uh, follow the advice of committees that are populated by mainstream scientists. Those colleagues that ridicule deviations from the beaten path. Mm. And as a result, you don't get people uh, uh, going in directions that are not, um, uh, not conservative. So I but, think that the current funding system is flawed. Eric. Brian, let me just try to get back to what I said that started this. Uh, Avi is in a very enviable position as one of the most visible and successful scientists in this area. He's sitting at Harvard. He's got an enormous number of publications, very high H index, et cetera, et cetera, chaired professor. And what if somebody came out of the University of Kentucky and said the same sorts of things that Avi was saying. And you said, well, if you're so sure of that, why don't you send a probe? You know, and uh, this gets really tiresome and really irritating. The problem has to do with, I don't want to base these discussions any longer uh, on an anchor of this backbiting, hating community where we have to answer these questions. Well, how would you answer this? And how would you answer that? The polite answer is the adults are talking and you're not running the conversation. So we have to get back to an understanding that Avi may be fully funded and Avi may be in a position to be fully funded. And I think that that's great. But pushing everybody to release an NFT or cozy up to a billionaire is not practical for science in general. And I'm going to stand up for the portion of us that said we had a relationship with the federal government or the federal government more or less knew when to leave us alone and it knew how to protect people for their careers. Our private universities are not private. They're all federally funded. Uh, they may claim to be private, but they're all getting huge amounts of money through overhead and indirect uh, recovery, et cetera, et cetera. We have a relationship to defend because we produce a public good that is inexhaustible and inexcludable. And quite honestly, I'm not giving up on the government just because we've had an explosion of kind of centrist uh, popularity contest thinking in science. We need to get back to the point where somebody with a good idea from the University of Kentucky who knows no billionaires has a very good chance of getting funded if it flies straight in the face of somebody at Princeton. And whether or not the faculty at Stanford or the University of Chicago is upset by this is irrelevant. The key question is where there are good ideas do we have smart people with slush funds who can throw money that is not directed by consensus or peer review or popularity contests or reputational concerns? And what I'm asking you from the Into the Impossible podcast is, can we allow the journalistic groups that say, is NASA putting its reputation at stake, question mark? Can we give them the week, the year, the decade off and actually conduct scientific discussions amongst ourselves without constantly being referenced to these people? Because this is a pretty serious issue, and I'm perfectly happy to find out that there's not a single shred of evidence of any extraterrestrial visitation, but that there's been an enormous campaign to hide our spy planes and our stealth technology, which took on this form. Well, that's kind whatever of whatever it is. Whatever it is. The plea is, can you stop asking questions of the form? How would you respond to the person who just wrote an article who said the following thing? And the answer is F off. That's how I'd respond. Science is being done, and we can't constantly reference ourselves to some journalist who didn't know what they were talking about on deadline, who actually can't solve a partial differential well, equation. Eric, it's not just, and Avi will you know, certainly reciprocate this sentiment. It's not just the journalist. It's it's the SETI community. It's the it's the other scientists. It's authors of books about you know from scientific perspective that have interviewed Avi. It's me, uh, astrobiologists. Me, who who should who who would be me, left? Avi would be. What? We've created a world where everyone has to guard her or his reputation constantly in order to stay one more year in the good graces of this communalist system that figures out who can breathe and whose oxygen gets shut off. So the point is, is that those colleagues are worth much less than colleagues of 60 years ago. 
And the fact is that in the Hunger Games that we've created, I'm much less interested what the person down the hall thinks about this work or that work. What I'm most interested in is which scientists have the ability to say, I may have screwed up, I'm not 100% sure, here are the things that would change my mind. And I'm least interested in the scientists who say, ooh, that's out there, that's spicy, <laughs> that's weird. No. Those people need to be ejected. And I, what I'm going to say is, is that inclusion has been much trumpeted, but exclusion is just as important. Who we exclude from the conversation is critical to the progress of science. And I'm trying to say that there are, there are voices sneaking into this Q&A that I'm eager to exclude, not because I believe that they're dissident voices who must be heard and that I want to step on them. What I'm instead suggesting is that trying to murder ideas in their inchoate infancy is absolutely antithetical to science. And what we need to be doing is making sure that the, we're, I'm here to level the playing field in part. And we need to step up and say that certain people, myself not included, were early on this. Certain people, myself included, got some bad information, went after people not understanding what the current situation was. And as somebody who got this topic completely wrong, it's important that we talk to people who switch their minds and who can say, I screwed up, rather than people who seem to always have their finger in, in, in the air and always seem to know exactly what the current prevailing ideas are. And, and that's what I'm suggesting. And I don't think that our colleagues are as important now as they used to be because they're all on life support and it can be turned off and we all know it and they all know it. Well, Eric, you know, I have to respond just because you are, you know, kind of painting me as an, from the perspective of, you know, someone who's attacking without actually capturing what I'm doing. What I'm doing is a process that we call annealing that your friend <laughs> Nicholas Taleb would call anti-fragility, right? The more scientific scrutiny that Avi's claims or my claims in science or your claims withstand, the better. It actually no. makes, makes, well, I don't no, think no, that, no, 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 no. It hinges how, how on the word that? scrutiny and critique. What I'm trying to say is, is that we have to jealously defend the gatekeeping of what constitutes critique. And what I'm claiming is absolutely Avi needs to be critiqued. But I go back to Paul Dirac. Paul Dirac made a very clear point, which is you have to make sure that ideas are not subject to you know, the, the most rigorous um, experiment uh, agreement with experiment criteria too early. And in part, I, it's like infant industries. We have to protect new ideas like maybe this is an artificial entrant, not because uh, that's a great idea. I have no opinion. Avi could be completely wrong about a muamua. I've got zero, zero dogs in that fight. What I am saying is, is that it takes incredible courage right now to say something like that and to pretend... But the, okay, but to, to then claim that the, the critiques uh, are something that you need to subject, this isn't anti-fragility. It's like saying we don't need a bilipid layer for the cell because all the organelles should uh, you know, withstand full contact with the environment. <laughs> Bullshit. What you need is, is a bilipid layer with some very careful gates to regulate what gets in and what gets out. Okay. And I don't want to give the community that is taking an easy pot shot here or there, the same status as the careful community who says, I think you blew something in equation seven. Right. Let you me let Avi, yeah, go ahead. Right. You studied the Galileo, right? Yes, I did. You, yes, my, right. my hero. Uh, do you Study think him. he would have been, so wouldn't you agree that he would have been canceled on social media today? He, he would have been canceled many times and he would have been canceled for his scientific ideas in part, but also his political ideas, right? Yeah. And he, had, so, he got a lot of things wrong, as well as being brilliant, right? As all scientists do. Yeah. But, but my point is, we can't let uh, society control the ideas we have. We should allow evidence to guide us. And yeah. some people are wrong, and, and it's a learning experience. So my point is, it's not about, it's not a personal contest. You know, it's not showing that we are smart. Nature is smarter than all of us. That's why I think if we ever find clear evidence for a smarter kid on the block, it would bring us to our senses because we keep competing with each other, just like kids in the kindergarten, you know, playing in the sandbox. And then suppose the kids look 
away and there is a car passing by you know it shows them the world is much bigger yet there is something much more sophisticated going out there and why would we fight with each other about who is slightly more intelligent who who solved the uh, problem in extra dimensions that we don't know exist rather than just look around and pay attention to the evidence that looks intriguing you know that is the natural thing to do and for some reason it's being abandoned these days abandoned because people prefer virtual realities it's sort of like being high on drugs and preferring a reality that gives you pleasure on a reality that is the actual one that we share yeah well science is a painstaking process you don't get the instantaneous dopamine hits of thumbs up and oh sick burn and this is you know avi got taken down in front of this crowd and eric said this to brian and defenestrated him uh but but the, the point is i wouldn't be having this conversation if i wasn't deeply interested in it and putting my scientific bona fides, you know, in, in your service, as I did for the past year with, with my mi minuscule and, and, and very minor contributions, whatever I did. Uh, but the point is, you know, when I, when I think about collecting data and the process of it, I, I hear it said that, you know, everything should be made, you know, public, we should FOIA the hell out of the government. Um, but on the other hand, I also think like people, if you can't get scientists to do it, it may mean that, that they're not interested and they're not truly curious the way Galileo or Einstein was. But it may be that they have used whatever scientific, you know, acumen they have to triage the problems that they're going to be involved in. And this one doesn't rise to the threshold of being interested. And that's not a criticism. I'm just saying that's, that's an explanation. Right. That's right. Okay. I'm a scientist and I'm interested in it. Yep. Point proven. Uh, okay. So, let, you know, I prefer to go in a path uh, that was not taken the way Robert Frost phrased it in his poem. Uh, for him, it was the thing that, uh, you know, uh, made made a difference for in his life. For me, it's the ability as a physicist to find low-hanging fruit because nobody walked that path and there might be something really obvious that we will find. Right. So my point is, I'm a scientist. I'm, and why would that be an issue to someone if the Galileo project is funded by the private sector? For, uh, why would that even raise an eyebrow? That everyone should be happy about it. But Eric's not saying that. Eric's saying it shouldn't have to be. It should be funded by the public, which I agree with. It should be publicly funded. But I also think that Eric's saying maybe something I don't agree with, which is that it shouldn't be privately funded or we shouldn't have to rely on private. And you, in fact, are relying perhaps on this NFT um, uh, scenario. And I would like to hear that because it is the first time I think it's been tried at scale. Eric, you're mocking me. I, I don't like that. What, what is the smirk for, Eric? No, no, it's not. It's not. Look. What we're talking about here has a history. And the history, for example, in gravitation, there was a prize offered by what appeared to be a lunatic named Babson and the Gravity Research Foundation for a fair amount of money back in the day mm -hmm. um, for a prize critiquing gravity. And nobody in the physics community wanted to touch it up until Bryce DeWitt wrote an essay, won the money, and suddenly everybody wanted the money because Bryce DeWitt had crossed the threshold. So the question of whether people find this interesting or not interesting, uh, you only get to ask that once money is available to actually look at the project and no reputational damage is available. And I guarantee you, Brian, that if ridiculous amounts of money and wonderful conferences and flying people first class was available and all the top people uh, at the Institute for Advanced Study piled in and de-risked it in terms of reputation, I guarantee you this topic would find a huge number of scientists who say, I think this is the most interesting problem in the, in the world, who right now would say, yeah, little green men, hard pass, no thanks. So what I am trying to say is we all know, we, we, the Gravity Research Prize is a perfect example of how human scientists are when it comes to their reputations, because reputation is survival. And to pretend like that's not going on just to say, well, your colleagues don't necessarily agree with you. It's like, well, let's find out whether the colleagues agree. If we put a large amount of money and we destigmatize it, I will make you a bet that an enormous number of colleagues suddenly find this incredibly fascinating. How could we do that, Avi? I mean, Eric and I have talked, and I don't expect you to have listened to every single episode of the podcast. In the past, Eric and I have talked about, you know, this, this, this true truth that society owes physicists. They owe us a lot. We created a transistor. We created a laser. We created trillions of dollars of internet. <laughs> um, and so, but how do you monetize that ex post facto? Uh, it's not so easy as when you have the escrow account, you know, and you're waiting for your deposit to clear, right? So how do we do something 
you know, oh, ahead of time to fund science like this, especially speculative. Well, but actually, let's step I, away. I, let me let me just ask you a question, Avi. Stepping away from aliens, anything to do with it? Let's just say we want to fund basic research, which you and I do, Eric does. How do we do that? Use leveraging before the fact contract with the with the government or with some other pro- public sector funds, so that we don't get hosed again, like we did with the transistor, the laser, the maser, the the, the internet, and and also telecommunication. How do we do that ahead of time? Well, there is a there is a path, and it involves a shortcut. So, in other words, if you um, discover something that people have passion for, that people care about, and that could make could be revolutionary then it will turn minds of a lot of people at once and in the context of what we were discussing before if i go on an expedition to papua new guinea and i scoop the ocean floor with a sled and a magnet and i bring up a piece of equipment that Mm -hmm. looks like iphone 100 okay and what i mean by that is something that you cannot really reverse engineer but it does miracles in your hands when you press some buttons okay suppose it happens you know just a futuristic i don't like science fiction but i'm giving you an example of something that could happen because we are going to the ocean and are going to to scoop the uh, the fragment so suppose we happen to find it you know whether it exists or not is part of reality and um it's just a fishing expedition and we don't know what fish we will find so this is an example where you do the experiment and if you find it, it changes everything. Then everyone in the world will talk about it, fund it. The scientific community will jump up and down and say, of course, we knew that. We always said that in the 60s, someone wrote a paper about something like that. It's actually not new. And this person was, you know, just a fisherman that found it. It's not important uh, that this person found it. It was discussed in the 60s. And of course, we all, now, the reason I say that is that there was a congressman that made anti-gay statements for many years. And then when he left Congress, he confessed that he was gay. And to I've me, that's, that that's a clear illustration of human nature where people that really want uh, to discuss the subject, they can ridicule it just by looking around and seeing that other people are ridiculing it. Uh, and unfortunately, you know, in academia, it's very prevalent. Uh, so the way to change that is to find something that will be obvious and change everything. And of course, it's not easy. You know, we would mostly, most likely find fragments of an iron meteorite, not of a... Re- but at any event, you should try. And the only way not to find it is by not searching. And that's my fundamental point, that if you have a prejudice and you say... This is too speculative. I don't want to even deal with it. You will never discover something that you didn't expect. Even if it lies on the ocean floor, there is this gadget there. You will never go and search for it. And you will fill your life. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy to remain ignorant. So let me ask you, Avi, assume that you go to Papua New Guinea, you get huge funding from all of these billionaires who are crowding your I'm very worried about your billionaire problem on your porch. (laughs) I have Um, another one tomorrow. Tomorrow I love it. Fantastic. Uh, we'll send orkins. Sounds like you have an infestation. So the question is, um, assume you find nothing, or in fact, what you find is so boring and uninteresting as to uh, tell you that you completely screwed up and that there was nothing to be found. What do you, how do you feel the day after? Oh, no, it's, um, you know, if you think about life, we spend so much effort in directions that do not prove fruitful. Even if you are trying, suppose you want to marry someone, a spouse, and you have to go through many blind dates that turn out quite badly, okay? And if you look at scientific scientific record of very accomplished scientists, most of the time, you know, they write papers that are not very consequential. And so you're just trying to find the one case that will make a huge difference. And it's it's difficult. Life is difficult. If it was easy, then everyone would have it. So the point is, without trying, without going on dates, you will obviously not marry anyone, okay? And you have to give yourself a chance to be wrong. And the way to do it is just like a kid. It's a learning experience. We should behave like kids. Scientists should be open-minded, curious, rather than protecting their ego, protecting their image so that they can, because it's not about prizes. Think about it. All these awards and prizes and, uh, you know, that, that we get 
are completely meaningless. What matters is the intellectual content of what we find. And I would much rather find this iPhone 100 than uh, win the Nobel Prize for some for the fact that the expansion of the universe is accelerating. Because of the intellectual content of the meaning that it will have to humanity. Okay, and assume for the moment, just to take your date analogy, that you go on a blind date and you're not really connecting and you find out the person is into the occult and uh, not, not the right person for you. Do you immediately demand all your money back or do you say, look, if I'm going to go on a few dates, I expect that I'm going to pay for a lot of dinners that lead nowhere? Well, it, yeah, that, that's exactly what happened with the Large Hadron Collider. Aside from the Higgs, the mission was to find supersymmetry in the natural parameter space that everyone recommended. We haven't found supersymmetry. Did anyone commit suicide as a result? No. Uh, we just said, okay, well, maybe it's around the corner. Maybe it's at or, higher energy. Or maybe, isn't it great that we found that low energy supersymmetry isn't present because we could have written an endless number of articles on low energy supersymmetry at the electroweak scale uh, and without actually having an accelerator, we, we wouldn't know. I mean, I was just at this conference where the person said, here are all the models we've ruled out. Here's the one model that remains. And it was exactly. amazing to look at parameter space. And, right. you know, at a certain level, um, if you keep hearing about some gal that uh, you should really go on a date with because she's looking for the same things you are and you find out that, in fact, it's not a workable situation you've you've paid for dinner but you've learned something valuable you don't have to keep listening hey you really you really need to find out what's going on with susan these days exactly you learn no matter what we gain knowledge as a result of getting more evidence the only way not to gain knowledge is to behave like experts because they say our past knowledge is all that we need there is nothing else if we studied rocks in the past everything in the sky is rocks that's yeah. it it must but be natural and then the last question, Avi, just to, to, yeah. to do this. What do you think the most persuasive scientific critiques that you're worrying about of your own projects and your own theories are as opposed to which ones play well or seem to be damning? Like, in other words, what is it that gets through to you with, that you're worrying about at night? Because I really want people to understand that trying to get rid of silliness isn't trying to get rid of critique it's a question of you really have to focus on what is germane what's collegial and what is constructive so what is it that you're worried about uh, with extraterrestrial technology and probes and visitors that you might have most wrong here yeah so i'll give you a specific example in the case of Oumuamua, the most unusual anomaly was that apparently there was uh, it it exhibited an excess acceleration away from the sun, excess push away from the sun by uh, such some uh, mysterious force because we didn't see it evaporating. There was no rocket effect. And what worried me the most is that the measurement of the trajectory was wrong, was off. And so together with uh, my postdoc, uh, John Forbes, we really looked really carefully into the data, what could be uh, errors that they didn't account for, and I was, uh, and that was after we wrote the paper with uh, Shmuel Biali, where we suggested maybe it's an artificial object, a very thin object pushed by reflecting sunlight. So what worried me is that the measurement is wrong. And um, we went through this with my postdoc for several months to check that there, the conclusions that were drawn from the data uh, were correct, and we confirmed it. But um, this is an example where a situation where, you know, there seemed to be an anomaly, but it's actually in the way the data was analyzed and not, you know, in, in, in the properties of the objects. And I constantly worry about this and I could be wrong. You know, I was wrong in, in some other cases in my scientific career, and, uh, but that's part of my learning experience. I'm, I'm not afraid of being wrong. And I think if you don't dare to collect more data, you will never figure out what's behind anomalies. My biggest fear is that I'm being propagandized by a disinformation campaign that was constructed by the government to keep certain things secret. And I have no hard data, but I have mountains of indirect evidence. And so well, I'm, Eric, I'm worried that, in fact, there is no there there at a scientific level, but there will be a there there 
at a government trust and disinformation <clears throat> level. So that's like one of my biggest concerns. Yeah, um, but also I, I'm, thinking, uh, I'm talking about objects that were discovered by astronomers. Uh, no, 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 no. You were talking about a different issue. I, I'm just yeah. saying, right. but, but I, I've uh, never said that, anything one way or the other about Oumuamua or anything like that. Right. But one thing I should advise you, Eric, is um, mm. don't, don't worry too much about government. Here we're dealing with nature. Okay. So government is completely secondary. They cannot change what nature gives us. Okay. Yeah. And I give much more respect to nature than to government because nature obeys, according to physics, a universal set of laws. Government does not. So, guys, I want to pivot uh, in the remaining time we all have, hopefully. Uh, to another subject, uh, with your permission, and that's um, that's an issue uh, that Avi has written very uh, poetically and lovingly about, uh, and it involves academic um, academia, but specifically scientific family. I, I want to refer people to the in the show notes down there. When you when you go down there and you take your your thumb and you click the like button, uh, if you want to see these guys back on this podcast or people like that in this conversation. Um, when you're down there, you'll see a link to Avi's second Medium post, and it's about academia, and it's the joys of an academic family. Avi, what what, what prompted you to write this this lovely, touching article? And uh, I want Eric hasn't seen it, perhaps, but uh, I want I want to discuss on what academia could be, what it hasn't been, maybe for the past decades, and and where it could be with things like we've talked about with NFTs, with uh, DAOs, with uh, AI and other acronyms. So Avi, take it away. What was this article's intention? Well, uh, last week, uh, my former students and postdocs, uh, about 60 of them, organized a conference to celebrate my 60th birthday. It was a scientific conference, but uh, during the coffee breaks and at the banquet, uh, many of them came over to me to tell me for the first time that I made a big impact on their lives. And that was a big mm -hmm. revelation. And the, the, the biggest reward that I ever received, uh, or you can say, call it an award uh, in a sense, because uh, I always tried to help young people, people. And, and when I was department chair, I was always on the side of the faculty. If there was an issue with the higher administration, I fought for the faculty. And the same uh, deal with students and, and postdocs that were mine, I always sided with them and tried to help them. Uh, because I, I very much uh, sympathize with their vulnerability. And, um, and so during the banquet, for example, last week, uh, uh, many of them stood up and, and mentioned stories. And, you know, some of these brought tears to my eyes. I, I simply forgot how much I helped some of them and they brought it up and it was very moving to me. Now, we also had a, a soccer match between the <laughs> postdocs and the faculty. And, I should say the faculty won uh, 2-0, and I, I was uh, fortunate to score one of the goals. But uh, the, the good news is that the, the postdocs will become faculty in the coming years. Um, and altogether, people told me after this conference that it was one of the most unusual uh, conferences they ever attended because it did feel like an academic family where uh, like-minded people, my students and postdocs that think you know, just like me, since I sort of trained them in this way, they are curious about a wide range of topics and they never spoke to each other. Each of them knew me from the interaction with me and not they did not interact among themselves. So for them, it was really uh, the first family meeting. And, uh, you know, in a way, if something bad happens to me in my morning jog, if a car runs over me every, every morning when I uh, I jog at 5 a.m. so that the, the, there isn't much risk, but it's possible that the car would run over me. Now I have um, the sort of peace of mind that uh, my academic DNA will be preserved in this uh, very, uh, how should I say, uh, vibrant uh, uh, group of, of uh, innovative scholars that are sort of my academic children. And there is a, a lot of joy in recognizing that, uh, uh, some bliss, I would say. And being in Martha's Vineyard la all of last week in their company was probably the best week of my life. Uh, and it's very different. You have to understand it's very different from conferences where, you know, that are specialized on a specific topic. Here it was more the theme of the way I do my science that was translated into the careers of so many people that have a common thread, which is let's be driven by curiosity. Let's forget about the nonsense of trying to prove that we are smart. 
and everyone was conversing in a very collegial fashion. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, that, that was, and I mentioned that in my uh, Medium essay, that anyone is interested. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's linked down below. Eric, you and I have talked before about academia and in particular Harvard, and I, I don't think that it's a secret that Harvard kind of has an outsized impact on the culture of academia. It's our oldest institution, I believe, um, next to the second best Ivy League, uh, which is Brown University, where I got my <laughs> uh, But uh, But Avi, when, when we look at it, we think about what these institutions mean. Uh, you and I do the same thing, and I, I'm convinced Eric should have done this, but he decided to, to go off in a different direction. But as professors, we stand in front of a piece of rock, and we scrape on it with another piece of rock called chalk. And we basically are just up there, the sage on the stage in front of in front of people for the first time. in I think history, as far as I know, I taught a cosmology class this quarter that uh, I used uh, demonstrations and experiments in. I did uh, experiments in thermodynamics. I did experiments in acoustic waves to teach CMB acoustic oscillations. I did spectroscopy. I did all sorts of fun stuff. Geiger counter, heavy water. Um, but even that, you know, I can't really hurt my arm patting myself on the back. So it wasn't that way. What can we do about academia, Eric? And especially, I want to get from your opinion. You have you have reached millions of people with very vivid displays, and I put a link to the portal and your your webpage down below. How can we reform education? How can we cancel not cancel Harvard, but how can we reform this this institution? It's a thousand years old since the first university in Bologna, Italy. We've basically not changed at all, and 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 I, I think it's it's overdue for a change. Eric, first you, then Avi. Um, more or less, I think we had things pretty well in hand until we lost our discipline, hope and funding. Um, so my, my feeling about this is that in order to restore this, we're going to have to have some huge wins that come from people who cannot be subsumed in this sort of sweeping critique that has crashed over academics that somehow Academics is the most bigoted, uh, exclusive, um, you know, toxically male environment. Lots of these things have, have some truth to them. But there was also a lot of things that, um, that happened that were miraculous, wonderful cultures like Isidore Rabi's lab at Columbia that allowed people who were barred from universities at that level to come and do scientific work where more or less... Uh, there has to be a scientific underground, an underground railroad to smuggle good ideas, good people, uh, the money they need, the support they need. You know, I, I, I heard about Avi's um, conference celebrating his 60th birthday. Happy birthday, Professor Loeb. Mm -hmm. um, but the thing that really made me sad was that as an orphan, as a guy who did, did not have an advisor, um, I can tell you that there's a different romance towards being on your own and there's a romance towards being part of a worldview. And I think that the people like Avi who try to make sure that their students survive, who are no nonsense when it comes to the research, who make sure that they have a legacy um, are really important. And I think Harvard in particular is the pivot point. Harvard is both the best and worst place in the entire academic universe. It gets incredible people. It gets, it's incredibly tolerant of all sorts of crazy ideas. And it's incredibly brutal backstabbing behind the scenes, back of house nonsense at the same time. And so in a certain sense, what we have to do is to recognize that it, the most important part of academics is to restore some concept of professional ethics so that people have the freedom to share their ideas, that they know that they're going to have an ability to feed their family the next day, that they have to uphold professional ethics or they're out because we cannot afford an even small number of relatively smart people to destroy the entire thing by infecting it with, with snark and Twitter culture as, as we've seen with journalism. Um, so I think that roughly speaking, we need to have some huge wins, the huge wins need to come from individuals, not groups. Those individuals need to be communally minded. They need to say very clearly that we need more resources. We need to shut down weaker PhD programs. We need to focus on research and not teaching because 
Uh, it's very in vogue to think that a university is primarily focused on teaching. A research university is focused primarily on research and allows for teaching to happen. Um, and there's a reason. If you want to go to a college, you need to go to a college. But part of the problem is that a lot of things that made our great research universities fantastic institutions don't play well to 2022 years. And those of us who believe in the mission of a university and its own diversity, equity, and inclusion program called Merit need to stand up vocally and say certain people need to leave, certain programs need to be shut down, more money needs to be found, we need to stop lying that everything has to do with groups and not individuals, power laws are everywhere, and we've got to be more courageous standing up for ourselves and not wilt every time somebody calls you a white supremacist for just saying the obvious truth. Yeah. Um, if I may mm -hmm. bring up um, several other aspects uh, that need improvement, there is a lot of room for improvement, I must say, coming from within academia. Um, Harvard's president, uh, Bacow, uh, announced that he will step down a year from now. And I was asked by the Crimson, uh, what do I think is a good future for Harvard? And um, I thought, I said that it has been 70 years since uh, James Conant was uh, the last scientist who served as Harvard's president, and that shows. Mm -hmm. And nowadays, society is very much driven by science and technology. And my point is, it doesn't mean that we should abandon the humanities. In fact, there is a huge role for the humanities to be playing in the modern technological age. For example, lots of ethical questions that AI systems, social media bring to the front. And philosophers and ethicists uh, have a very important role in shaping the future of society. But it needs to be about the future, not about the past. I mean, of course, we can study what ancient Greeks said, but they never had the gadgets that we have. So we need to bring up new philosophical ideas to bear with the new reality that we live through. And so that's the future that the university should aspire to uh, promote. And, uh, and therefore, it, the next president needs to be a scientist. Now, I don't think they would listen to my advice. They haven't listened last time around. Uh, but that is my sincere hope that, you know, science and technologies uh, will lead the way. And the basic message of science is sharing of knowledge and cooperation. And science does not adhere to national borders. And we are all part of the human species and the knowledge that we acquire through science should be shared. And these are very noble ideas in this age of isolation and separation and fighting each other and wars and so forth. You know, the message that science brings, like, let's work together and make a better future for ourselves. Just to give, give you another example, um, Ezra Klein uh, on his New York Times podcast a few days ago was, spent 15 minutes trying to answer a question, the following question. Uh, should I decide not to have children uh, because of the implications to climate change? That was the question. And to me, the answer, you know, it would have taken me a few seconds to answer that question, but <laughs> he spent 15 minutes. And here is my answer. Uh, you know, uh, the future is uh, within the realm of our scientific accomplishments. We can make policy based on our uh, scientific understanding. We can uh, decide uh, how to leave our planet and go to space um, and not risk uh, the future of humanity by a single point catastrophe here on Earth based on science and technology. And so my point is we should have as many kids as we want, as the more the better, and then let them shape a better future using science, you know, and these could be our uh, biological kids mm -hmm. or they could be our technological kids, you know, using uh, in, uh, AI systems to help us because they will become smarter than us in the future. So I am uh, much more in favor of the replace, replacing uh, Darwin's principle of survival of the fittest with survival of the optimist. You know, you have to be an optimist so that the future will be much more promising. If you decide not to have kids, it's as if you decided uh, you prefer death over life. Right, you know, yeah. wanna, and, and, you know, Albert Camus in his, in his essay, uh, The Myth of Sisyphus, 
the first sentence there says the biggest question in philosophy is whether life is worth living, living right? or should we commit suicide you know and that's the biggest question in philosophy i say if you exp- expand expand that to humanity as a whole to our civilization uh the biggest question is whether humanity uh, is worth longevity you know uh, surviving longer forever mm-hmm. and uh, this is the most important question in the context of science not in the context of philosophy but no, in the context I agree. of science. I actually and, uh, think it's even deeper than that and and just to point out you know there's a saying the optimist builds the plane but the pessimist builds the parachute uh, it's appropriate to talk about this on the eve of the eve of Father's Day, of course. And it doesn't take, as you said, it doesn't take children. We don't all have to be fathers or mothers or parental units of unspecified gender. Uh, we could also be ideological and 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 uh, thought leaders, thought, thought mentors, men and women to children. But I want to ask you something, Avi, that Eric and I have spoken a lot about is the lack of diversification of the portfolio of those that speak about, like Elon Musk, who we, we both have affection for and admiration for in a lot of ways, but but see criticism of as well. Uh, but Eric, you know, uh, one of the listeners asking a question on my uh, where I take questions on my uh, community page, my YouTube channel, is you know why why are we so kind of all in one basket, putting our eggs in all in one basket? How do you react to Elon Musk's approach to you know let's become interplanetary, let's go to one other planet, <laughs> let's double our planets in our portfolio management? What do you think about Elon Musk? I've never asked you, Avi. What, what, what's your uh, uh, you know uh, well, analysis of first, his approach? First of all, uh, I, I wanted to say that uh, another thing missing in academia that I didn't have a chance to mention is diversity of ideas. Mm. Okay, and we t- touched about it before, but basically. The idea of tenure is all about allowing people to have job security so that they can promote ideas that are not uh, along the beaten path, okay? And uh, unfortunately, it's not being used. When people get tenure, they become lazy and they don't do much. They become dead wood very often. So it's being abused. This privilege is really an an amazing privilege. I mean, we don't get paid a lot in academia, but we do have the privilege of job security and we should take advantage of it. We should explore ideas that are not conventional. And that's another thing that needs to change in academia. Now, coming back to Elon Musk, of course, you know, there are major hurdles. For example, if you go to the surface of Mars, you will be bombarded by cosmic rays and your body would not survive for more than a year or a few years. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, that needs to be solved. And one way is to go down uh, underground, you know, uh, in a cave and they live there, or there needs to be special uh, infrastructure built to protect uh, people over there. And also people on on travel there. Uh, you don't want, I mean, uh, you don't want to send people to their death. Uh, and, and so that those practical concerns were not attended to in a very public way, in a very science oriented. So I, I really think we should solve the health uh, risks that uh, people will face when going long term to Mars. Otherwise, I think, uh, by the way, um, I don't think humans are really the future of humanity. Okay. I think uh, the future of humanity is uh, some very advanced form of autonomous robots with artificial intelligence. I do believe that. Uh, and I'm proud of uh, our technological kids because you know, they will be able to survive much better. You know, why would some random processes of uh, on the surface of Earth in a soup of chemicals uh, make the best possible uh, outcome? You know, that to me, it sounds like, uh, well, we got uh, to this point, but we have a lot of faults. You know, if you look at human history, uh, clearly humans have a lot of faults. And uh, perhaps we can build a system that will be better than humans. Uh, and I'm looking forward for the first AI uh, scientists, you know, because they will not be driven by their ego if they see an object that looks like uh, a, a rocket booster. Uh, they will not call it a rock. I want to ask you about that, Avi. I'm sorry to interrupt, Eric. I'm going to give you a chance. I'm going to give you a requisite th- 30 seconds to respond. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but Avi, I, I I want to push back with love and kavod and respect. Okay, so this Uh-oh. guy here, do you know what his what what he said his happiest thought was, Avi? You know, I'm sure you know what he said his happiest thought was, right? Go ahead, say that he in free fall you experience no gravitational field. Now let's let's unpack an AI Einstein A E A I E A E. How does such a thing know about free fall? Like, what, what does that even mean? And second of all, what does happiness mean to such a... In other words, are you really serious? you think AI physicists are around the corner or is that kind of wishful thinking? That oh, no, no. Optimism? I, I, I Irrepressible think optimism. Can, uh, 
You, no, you can imagine a system that will uh, basically digest data provided to it by instruments directly. So the instruments will send the data to the AI system that will uh, analyze it and try to figure out what's going on. And it's the job of a scientist right now. It looks like, you know, a miracle. But in principle, you know, it could be done by a machine. I don't think humans are necessarily designed for that purpose. You know, we were gatherers and hunters. We were not scientists to start with. So our brain is not necessarily optimized for the purpose of being a scientist. And I have no problem getting pride uh, from a system that outperforms us. I don't have a, you know, that doesn't, uh, uh, you know, give a blow to, to my ego in any way. I, in fact, I would be extremely happy if I knew that we can build a system that corrects the faults of humans. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Eric, um, stepping back from the AI stuff to the to uh, any any of the topics that I rudely interrupted you over. No, 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 no. <laughs> By the way, with three Jews on a podcast, I'm surprised that I'm the only one interrupting either one of the two of you. So you guys are clearly much better bred and uh, influenced by our, our just imagine the, the number of opinions that we have right now, and exactly. it is getting close to Shabbat. I don't want to interfere with Avi's. Uh, Shabbat, but uh, I do want to thank you guys. Um, wait, 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 I didn't say anything. No, 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 no I know, but go on. Okay, go on. But, but uh, by the way, you know, if three Jews are on an island, you know how many synagogues you need for that? For them? Four. You need four, yeah, because you need one that their foot would never step in. <laughs> Eric. Um, okay, so where were we? <laughs> the AI physicists. Um, Look, I'm partial to humans, and I'm actually partial to egos. I mean, all sorts of things that I like, everybody has decided are terrible. Um, I like humans. I like egos. Uh, I, I'm glad I agree with both of you that we should have children um, and that Ezra should probably uh, remove himself and, and leave the rest of us alone in the gene pool. Um, look, we're in dire circumstances, and this the, what we're looking for is an analog of the neutron. And the neutron changed everything because it allowed chain reactions and that ushered in the atomic age or the semiconductor changed everything or the World Wide Web that came out of CERN. These are things that changed everything, whether it's, you know, radio frequency communications. We're looking for something that obviates the needs for rockets. Rockets are sort of embarrassing in 2022 because there's not that much that can be reached. So, you know, it's like buying a huge boat um, for a small lake there's just not that many places you can go um so my feeling about this is we have to reacquaint ourselves with the possible we've been living so long under einstein and bohr that we've forgotten that their limitations may not be our limitations if we can crack a puzzle and the neutron was 1932 so it's within living memory what we need to do is to reacquaint ourselves with the idea that finding a single new field or new way of looking at space-time or um, some adjustment to this order that has settled in, it's now almost 50 years old, uh, is necessary for us to dream again. And we, nobody dreams about finding, you know, Gilligan's Island was about an uncharted desert isle. It would be very weird to think about an uncharted desert isle in 2022 um, because we've mapped the earth, but we haven't mapped the heavens. So I think it's really important to recognize that uh, I fully support my friend Avi on his quest for the AI um, intelligences and the post-human um, discoverers. But I'm actually really optimistic that the next theories might have new possibilities for us humans, laden with ego though we may be, um, for us to survive each other. And I, I really believe that at some point Elon is going to get past his f fascination with SpaceX rockets and using Mars as the sales job and recognize that he stumbled onto a very correct paradigm, which is that we are in dire straits. If we don't get diversification, those humans are never going to build Avi's next level AI scientists. And I would really like to see ego come back in, people to be hyper-motivated to put in 100-hour weeks chasing dreams and to try to acquaint us with the cosmos that we may be able to visit. 
And people, the, the part of the problem is the instant you talk like this, the conversation has been pre-hijacked. People immediately think you mean Mars because Elon has said that we're going to survive because we're going to decamp to Mars, which is not really a realistic proposition via rockets. And then the next part of it is, oh, you must be talking about faster than light uh, travel, uh, Alcubierre warp drives, or uh, wormholes, because those are the only things that Einstein would allow you to use to dream about the cosmos. The idea of saying post-Einstein, that I accept Einstein for who he is and what he did, but he is not the last word. And there would probably not be a Schwarzschild singularity nor a Friedman Robertson Walker singularity if his theory was complete. It's probably merely effective. And that is the challenge of our times, to get out of the straitjacket. Um, so the thing that really attracts me to Avi's program in part is... If there's a one in 10,000 chance that we might find a technology that makes use of science that we don't know yet, um, that's really worth doing because it's not a paradigm that has ever occurred to us to get a technology beyond human. The only analog of this is biology where you have a blind watchmaker and the theory of selection means that there are pathways and pathways uh, beyond pathways in a cell that do things that we don't understand. So the, the principle of natural selection has done a marvelous job engineering technologies we can only dream about. But the idea that something might have engineered probes and vehicles to visit us uh, is an enticement to thinking about a cosmos that can be visited and certainly not by rockets for those of us with humans, families, and egos who I'm huge fans of and remain so to this day. Yeah, and I, I completely agree with Eric that Albert Einstein was not the smartest scientist that ever lived since the Big Bang 13.8 billion years ago. There must have been a smarter scientist on an exoplanet a billion years ago and the civilization that benefited from the wisdom of that scientist must have launched probes that would have reached us by now. Yeah. Well, guys, I am grateful for you, giant, enormous intellects, <clears throat> for a Weinstein, if not an Einstein, and for a lobe uh, that is a cranial lobe uh, and a lobe that I love uh, speaking to. Uh, guys, I got into this podcasting because, you know, my day-to-day -day job, I'm building experiments. I'm, I'm looking not for interstellar meteorites, but I'm trying to remove the imprint of cosmic dust from my CMB experiments. Uh, before we depart uh, for this uh, particular uh, occasion, I want to ask each of you if you have anything that you want to mention, advertise, besides uh, your Bitcoin rig, Eric. or uh, But uh, Avi, where can people find you? What are you most interested in? Is there anything else that we w should discuss on this particular episode? Well, uh, I have a listing of my uh, opinion essays that you can find on my website uh, at Harvard University. And uh, every few days I write a new one and you can follow up uh, on the latest developments. And uh, with me, whatever what, what you see is what you get. So just mm -hmm. trust me. And if we find something exciting, uh, you will know about it. Eric, how about you? Everyone's, uh, everyone's curious what you're up to. Well, I mean, I've been to some extent very much focused on uh, on physics recently, uh, talking to colleagues and going to meetings and things. Um, what I'm most alarmed by is that we get in touch with the desperation of the current moment with Putin and Ukraine, recognize that we're no longer kidding around and that it's not safe to continue in this idiom even if we probably survive this particular misadventure um it's really important that we drive more people towards science and make sure that when they get there they've got great lives ahead of them as opposed to this uh madness of having them eke out a living and constantly apologizing for everything interesting so that they can stay in the good graces i i would look um at a 2014 article that I wrote called uh, M-Theory String Theory is the only game in town to the question of what scientific idea is ready for retirement. Um, and there's also an article about Einstein's revenge, uh, which had to do with the idea that people who wanted to quantize gravity ended up instead geometrizing the quantum. 
Um, and after listening to what is now currently considered cutting edge physics theory, I want to just point out that a lot of people are leaving for quantum computation, trying to do quantum computers, trying to do machine learning. Uh, we've got to keep the excitement going. Uh, a generation or two has failed at theoretical physics, and it's time for voices that we haven't heard and new people entering the field to be given free reign, um, and particularly not constantly dogged by the quantum field theory crowd. I'm, I've come to the conclusion that quantum field theory is our, maybe our most powerful theory, but we don't understand it well enough to allow it to select for good new ideas. And I think what we have to do is we have to recognize that we are in a desperate search for new ideas beyond Einstein. They will ultimately have to conform to experiment and make sense of quantum field theory, which works very well. But we're going to have to look to make physics in particular exciting, and we can't back off it. Not everything is equally exciting. Fundamental physics is the only thing that I know of that is a reasonable hope of getting us out of the problem that fundamental physics originally got us into. So I think that this alien stuff is really important, even if I think it's relatively unlikely that it's going to do what I hope it could do for us. We're going to have to find every possible way of breaking out of Einstein's prison. So organizing an Einsteinian prison break, I think should be all of our top priorities at the moment because we're in pretty dire straits, but we're definitely a group worth saving. So that's where I am. That's where I'm at. Let's put them in jail behind bars made of Oumuamua skin. Um, guys, uh, this has been a treat. We've had over 2,000 people uh, in the room at one time. and um, But really what you guys uh, mean in your openness, in your articulation of, of some of the most complex topics that can exist and some of the most perilous politically and otherwise, I think it's really important. Avi, I just want to say one thing. You said maybe the next president should be a scientist. And I was thinking... Halavai, it should be for the president of the United States as well. Wouldn't that be nice? Um, Or it could be a disaster. Who knows? I mean, those movies that you've seen, you know, with the press. Anyway, Um, so uh, for me, I want to express my gratitude. I'm Brian Keating, host of the Into the Impossible podcast, as well as Dr. Brian Keating on YouTube, where I do videos from an experimental perspective because these brainiacs like Eric, like Avi, and like many of the colleagues I've had on, um, are theoreticians, and I think they're incredibly brilliant, but I think the experimentalists need to get a little bit of attention every now and then. So Amen. that's my unique angle. Boys, it's been fun. Avi, Shabbat Shalom, and Eric, uh, it's so good to see you, as it always is. And I hope you guys will come back maybe at the end of the summer. We'll get some clarity on uh, what's going on with these, uh, with these uh, government panels and so forth, and uh, we'll be able to discuss the real scientific issues. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic.